Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, October the 7th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Joining me today, Irish Times managing editor and economic savant, Cliff Taylor, political editor, Pat Leahy, and our political reporter, Jennifer Bray. Jen, I'm going to go to you first, because yesterday, Pat and myself went through the clash between the government and the National Public Health Emergency Team over whether or not to move to level five of the Living with COVID plan or to uh, just move to level three. So we don't need to rehearse all that again. But what developments have been since then. I was reading your excellent Irish Times um, Politics Digest, which landed in my inbox this morning. I recommend all our listeners to sign up for that. And you were writing, among other things, about a Fine Gael meeting last night. Yeah, so yesterday, I suppose, um, was the aftermath of those comments that Leo Varadkar made on Clareburn on Monday night. And, you know, people were kind of really uh, digesting what he'd said and, and thinking over the ramifications and wondering about the next steps, I suppose. Uh, and, and the focus, well, certainly the message that were, was coming out from government and from um, spokespeople to, to journalists was that it was time to, to put any, any squabbles aside. It was time to move on. It was Ireland versus the virus and there was no time for any other conflict. So, you know, a lot of yesterday was sort of digging around and seeing what moves were afoot. And I think Tony Holohan was spotted wandering into government buildings shortly after lunchtime. Uh, Leo Varadkar coincidentally left around two minutes later, but it's a total coincidence. Um, but he was in there to meet with Martin Fraser, Secretary General of the Department of Taoiseach. And like, I understand that meeting was to, I suppose, smooth over some of the issues that had arisen and find a path forward. It is interesting to note, though, I think that all throughout yesterday, none of the spokes, uh, men and women, the, the wonderful spokesmen and women of the different government parties would tell us why Tony Holohan was in the building. In fact, they said they didn't know that he wasn't meeting the Taoiseach and he wasn't meeting the Taunish and, and, and nobody in health knew and nobody in Taoiseach's knew. So it struck me that maybe they wanted to keep this a little bit quieter. But of course, there's journalists floating around everywhere and you can't keep something like that quiet. So regardless of that, I think, um, you know, later in the evening, Fine Gael had a parliamentary party meeting and there was a lot came up at it, to be honest with you. There was a, a lot of interesting comments that Leo Varadkar started off by saying that, you know, just that despite his previous comments that uh, this idea of a circuit breaker lockdown can't actually be ruled out. Now, he had kind of said a version of that on Claire Byrne, but I think it was the timing and the way he said it that it could be inevitable, uh, regardless of the decision not to go ahead with it at this stage. Uh, he also talked about um, enforcement around restrictions, but there was another kind of interesting conversation. It was quite broad and it was about the National Public Health Emergency Team and it was about the structures, how they report the governance and ways in which this can be, I suppose, avoided in future. And the former Minister for Housing, Owen Murphy, um, gave a lengthy enough presentation where he talked about this idea of using the National um, Emergency Coordination Group, which most of the our, our listeners will probably know is actually normally used in, in terms of severe weather events. Now, it is constituted it can be used for other you know it can be used for other major events like terrorism or or um anything anything major that might arise uh, uh in the course of 
whatever is happening. So, you know, he was talking about how you'd have a lead department, uh, you'd have the advisory body, which in terms of weather events would be Met Aaron, in this instance would be the, the Neffet. And then you'd have different departments. And like the aim of this basically would be that everybody's in the same room, that when they're talking about we're going to recommend X, that a different department, let's say it was education, could turn around and say, okay, this means we have to close the schools. How long do we have to close the schools for? Um, or justice could say, okay, that means we need enforced Garda patrols. How much money, how much Garda overtime will this cost? And in the round, it could be worked out. Like what he's basically talking about is getting everybody into a room together under a structure which has already been established and which has been proven, I suppose, to work quite well. Um, and I understand that idea had a broad welcome and it is something they'll have to look at because we know from Leo Vracker's comments on, on um, Claire Byrne that as he put it himself this won't happen again uh, there won't be a repeat of what happened on Sunday night where the public is bombarded with this message of a level five and there's alarm and panic and fear so that was kind of the gist of last night and you know, uh, we got, we sort of have more details coming out this morning about stuff that was said during the meeting. I think Patrick O'Donovan, the Fine Gael, uh, Minister of State for the OPW, said, uh, raised the idea of off-licences and, and curtailing the hours that uh, people can access off-licences, but also the potentially the amount of alcohol that they can consume. And as you can imagine, it's Ireland, it's topic of alcohol, it will get people talking. And most of the reaction has been negative because if people will find a way to get their hands on booze, no matter what you do, if you want to, you know, cut, do a cut-off limit, people will stockpile, you know. The, so th I think there's been a bit of backlash to that, but I, I would say watch that space. Um, but that's kind of the gist of where we're up to. But there was finally another meeting today with the uh, between the Chief Medical Officer Tony Holland and Michal Martin um, and Michal Martin was kind of I wouldn't say glowing in his praise of him the doll this afternoon but kind of praise sort of his, his, his selfless uh, contribution uh, to, to Ireland during the pandemic and I to, to me that that's that struck a note of let's move past this now. So there's a bit of oil being poured on, on troubled waters there. Pat, one of the things that struck me reading Jen's report um, this morning about Owen Murphy's comment about the National Emergency Coordination Group, that rang a bell with me and I threw those words into the Irish Times search bar. And um, the person who came up several times was our esteemed columnist Fintan O'Toole, who ever since early April has been asking this question that this group, which is not just there, as Jen says, for uh, weather emergencies, is there for terrorist attacks. It's supposed to be there for all form of emergency. Emergencies, but for some reason, when we had the biggest emergency possibly in the history of the state, uh, it was decided that, no, this was too big an emergency for the National Emergency Coordination Group. So it's interesting to hear it's finally going to be taken out of mothballs. Yeah, I had a feeling you were uh, going to make reference to that. All right, Hugh. I'm not sure it's entirely going to be taken out of mothballs, frankly. I think it was a suggestion at the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party that was warmly received. But I don't get any sense from government that the uh, that there is going to be uh, a reconstitution of that group, which is, you know, much larger, I suppose, uh, in in terms of not necessarily larger than NEFID, which is a large group that many people around government think should be slimmed down. But to bring in the, uh, you know, to bring in the input from a whole variety of other departments and agencies into the decision-making process, I'm not sure... Um, I'm not sure that is necessarily on the cards. Um, a much bigger emergency committee, it seems to me, is not necessarily 
a recipe for greater efficiency in policy making and implementation. In fact, it might turn out to be quite uh, quite the opposite. Can I actually just channeling Finton a little bit here? Just make the counter argument, which is that this group didn't come out of nowhere. It was the product of several years of consultation and research papers and checking out what was necessary for the state to be ready to deal with emergencies. And then the first time a real big emergency comes along, it just gets junked because it's too big. Well, I mean, I suppose, you know, if you were looking at the advent of various, you know, storms in recent years, you might call them emergencies as well. After all, you know, schools were closed, people were told not to go to work and so forth. But very much so, those were of a different order to a pandemic that has, you know, certainly isn't going to pass within uh, a short period of time as the storms inevitably were. So, uh, I mean, I think you're, you're right. And needless to say, Finton is right about uh, the unanswered questions as to what happened to the state's emergency plan. Uh, my scepticism at the moment is that the Neffed government uh, access is going to be completely redrawn with the insertion of another broader uh, emergency group at this stage. I do think that there are probably changes on the way in the way that Neffed and its advice are transferred to government, how that advice subsequently becomes, you know, plans for the implementation of measures and uh, of policies. But I'm not sure we're looking at, um, at something like that. In any event, I think, you know, I'm not sure how much public interest there really is in the, um, uh, you know, in, in the, the detail of the architecture that the state has employed uh, to deal with this crisis. I think they expect government to get advice from relevant experts and to act uh, quickly on it. Of course, they also expect that advice uh, to be uh, to be correct and they expect it to be um, you know capable of being acted upon in a timely manner by government and that's one of the reasons why I think that the there is very significant concern around government about the breakdown of re, uh, of recent days not that Tony Holohan's feelings uh, will be hurt or anything like that but that ultimately it damages the state's response to uh, the changing conditions of the pandemic and therefore that hampers uh, attempts to overcome it and returns to normality. Cliff, um, I suspect Pat is right when he says most people aren't that interested in the inner workings and structures of government agencies and departments as long as they get the job done. However, I'd say our listeners are quite interested in those kinds of subjects by, by definition. And it does seem to me that, you know, the media, to some extent, always frames these things as just personal clashes between one or two, in this case, Tony Holohan and, 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 and the government. But what it did illustrate was the fact that that isn't a very good system at this stage of the game where what happened on Sunday night could happen. And it does call for better structures, better systems, better mechanisms, all that boring but important stuff. Yeah, I think that's fair, Hugh. Um, I think that the wider context to this, of course, is important too. And it's that we're kind of lost in our response to this virus, you know, and, and so are most other countries across Western Europe. We had kind of hoped we could mumble on for a few months, keep most of the economy open, um, 
and still keep the virus under control. And, and it's kind of clear now that that's, that's going to be very difficult to do, that as soon as you start to reopen, the virus comes back. And not only does it come back, but it comes back with, with, with a vengeance. So I think what you saw last weekend in terms of the economy and in terms of the business response, you know, there was obviously uh, fury in government buildings and, and, and a lot of angst and a lot of arguments over the phase five recommendation. There was huge angst in the business community as well. And you, you could say, you, know, you, could, you could say, well, OK, that was that was a 24 hour thing. But I think it did bring up this question for businesses of, of where we're going over the next few months. So in the short term, even at level of three, most of the hospitality industry now is in real trouble. Uh, the Taoiseach was saying in the Dáil today that he expects 50,000 people to go back on the PUP, the p- pandemic unemployment payment, over the next couple of days. Um, so that's bringing it from 200 back to 250. Had we gone to level five, you could have multiplied that. Um, a couple of hundred thousand people at least would have been straight back on the PUP. So it does seem in terms of the what you're talking about and the, and the nature of the response that we do need some way to mediate those those different arguments a, a, a bit better and to and to find a way through them I, I, and I don't, I don't know what that is and you know one of the difficulties is that there may just not be an easy way through it and and, and perhaps we are heading for another for another wider lockdown but it has certainly changed the backdrop to the budget uh, coming up next week because I think one of the key messages that uh, Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGraw wanted to try and sell, if you like, next week or put across to try and underpin confidence next in the economy was that, look, we can in some way manage to live with this. We can keep the economy largely open. We can put in place the necessary supports when things have to close, maybe at phase three for periods of time. But now the fear has risen that, you know, phase three may not be enough. We may be looking at phase four and phase five. And in terms of the economy, the difference between three and four is is the really important one. Because at phase three, most of the economy is open, with the exception of the hospitality industry and, and the events people, and which have been closed all, the latter of which have been closed all, all along. At phase four, you're talking as things now stand in the government plan, of closing a huge extra part of the economy. All the non-essential retail sector closes, the construction sector closes, a part of the manufacturing sector closes. You're back in economic terms to where you were during the lockdown. Uh, and, and I think grappling with that now in the months ahead is, is, is going to be really difficult and it puts a, it's a really difficult backdrop uh, for the budget next Tuesday. And I want to ask you a little bit more in a minute about, about the budget, Cliff. But first, actually, Jen, could I ask you, uh, one of the extraordinary things about this year, it seems to me, is that we're only six days away from the budget. Usually it would be absolutely the key, the only subject of conversation and debate publicly and in the political sphere. Uh, I have no idea what's going on with the budget beyond the huge challenges which which Cliff just mentioned there. Um, is there any sense of the usual kind of haggling, somebody's up, somebody's down, somebody's pushing for something, somebody's, somebody's out of sorts, any of that kind of stuff going on? Not really. I mean, I think this year, um, just from different ministers that I've spoken to, the bilaterals have been um, a little bit of a of a damp squib. I mean, th- previously you'd be bartering over larger amounts of sums, but now, like I'm told, it's arguments over between five million and and ten million here and there. And like ministers have been told that really the the focus is Brexit, uh, COVID, and climate change. Well, climate change to a lesser degree, but climate change uh, factors into that. 
they're the main things. And when you look at the amount of money that is going, firstly, that's going to have to be put aside for measures that are already committed to. And when you look at money that will be needed next year, I mean, I think the last time we were on here, we were talking about how Michael McGrath said, you know, around nine billion would be needed in extra COVID expenditure next year. Now it's looking like that could be significantly more. And you know, that is the reality of the situation. There isn't much room for manoeuvre. And that means that there aren't much kite, there aren't many kites been flown. This time of year, normally you'd see, you know, talk about five euro for pensioners or um, welfare increases or maybe perhaps small changes to tax bans or, but you're not going to see any of that this year. I mean, um, I think that there won't be any major changes in terms of the tax structure for ordinary citizens and um, any kind of other changes in terms of welfare will be small and they'll be targeted just like they have been in previous years. So, you know, we're in a, we're in a different reality. The other thing as well is that the, the government are currently trying to get a handle on what exactly the long-term forecasts are uh, for the economy. And that's really, really hard to do. So I think in this budget, they'll probably break with tradition and it'll be a short um, forecast, prob- probably for around a year. Um, and that doesn't give much certainty. I know we're in a position where there isn't much budgetary certainty, but there, these are, I know people always say it and it's a phrase totally overused, but it is unprecedented territory. So what I'm saying, in long, long story short, is that there isn't that much squabbling. I mean, there's always a surprise or two um, and it's always interesting to see how they raise um, revenue through tax measures. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. Last year, Pascal Donoghue was in a particular position as we were at the height of the Brexit crisis as it as it stood just then to basically do what he wanted to do and not to succumb to the kind of the various sectoral pressures which always happen in the run-up to a budget and I think he probably got some praise on that for not from all quarters obviously but from from some quarters as well and here he is again in an even bigger crisis with Brexit looming again of course and and then added to multiplied in fact by the by the pandemic um he, he really can't, Jen is right, is he? he really can't plan further ahead than 12 months. We might be in a situation in 12 months. I was just listening to a New York Times podcast before we came on air in which uh, a previously very bleak um, prophet of what was going to happen with COVID was saying there was a very good chance that things would have wound down and be coming to an end by this time next year. So you have to kind of allow for that contingency as well as perhaps other much more bleak ones. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 near impossible, Hugh. You're right. And Jen is exactly right that they won't come forward with any long-term forecasts. Uh, and, and really, it would be a nonsense to do that. Um, so we get a forecast for 2021. Uh, that'll be it. Uh, we had been promised a long-term national economic plan to be published with the budget. That's not going to happen now. Uh, there'll be some kind of longer-term plan, I, I understand, published in November, but the really kind of serious one with the numbers in it isn't going to come till at least next spring. And you've got to say that against the, you know, you could say, okay, they're putting off the hard decisions, they're putting off the rows, they're putting off the decisions on how to pay for all the things they promised in the programme for government. And maybe to an extent they are. But really against the backdrop of the kind of uncertainty you're talking about, you know, you just can't. Um, even before we talk about COVID, Brexit is probably a 2% swing one way or the other in, in, in economic growth next year. That's That's pretty huge. Before you even start out, and 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 then COVID, COVID is even uh, COVID will have an even bigger impact, um, and and you're right, um, you know, listening to the, the WHO were saying last night maybe there might be a viable vaccine by the end of the end of this year, um, somebody else will say tomorrow night that <clears throat> there won't be one until twenty twenty three, 
And, you know, you're probably better off asking Sam McConkie or uh, Luke O'Neill than, than an economist for, for a forecast at this stage because, because we just don't know. And I'd say they wouldn't mind giving you one, actually, if you asked them. They wouldn't mind giving you one. No, this is true, all right. But what's, what's at stake in the middle of this is, is the whole consumer-facing part of the Irish economy. So even if you think of kind of the decisions that Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath have to, have to make, you're looking at helping how to help the hospitality sector, for example. So do you assume that we will still have a, we will have a hospitality sector, say, by the end of next year, which will be something like the one we, we all used to enjoy uh, before the pandemic came in? You know, that we, we could go out for a drink, um, you go to a hotel, you could drop in and, you know, meet people, arrange to meet people. Or, or, or will the virus still be with us and we're looking at a whole new kind of structure for these industries? What about travel? You know, will people be back traveling back on their holidays next year? Again, that impacts how you help the aviation sector, the travel sector, all that. So, so really difficult things. And I think the bottom line in terms of the budget is we're going to see a lot of money put, for, put aside in, in a contingency fund, a recovery fund, whatever they call it, but not allocated. So this, there'll be a big bag of money and they say, look, this is for COVID and Brexit. Whether it'll be one bag of money or two bags of money, I don't know. But there'll be a lot of money put aside, but it won't be allocated. It's likely to be needed. It may well be needed, but we don't know how or when it will be needed yet. And let's hope some of it may not be needed. And so say all of us, but but Pat, because in a situation where you might have, let's say, two very different scenarios one year from now, you really, from an economic planning point of view, you have to put your money on trying to sustain those parts of the of the economy which are currently in a deep freeze sustain them for as long as possible in the hope or expectation that there will be a world for them to return to the restaurants the bars the hotels the venues the gigs the concerts the cinemas all the things which are shut down certainly for probably most of the winter yes but as uh, as cliff says uh, you don't know what that's going to look like when you come out the far side of the pandemic. So if the size of the hospitality industry is X, then when you come out of the pandemic, whether it's next summer or, or summer 12 months after that, the size of the hospitality industry is going to be, you know, X divided by two or X divided by three, or maybe it's just going to be X. But there's a great deal of uncertainty uh, around that now, as, as there must be. The difficulty for the government, and you can see them beginning to grapple with some of this, uh, uh, some aspects of this problem, both here and, uh, and in the UK. Uh, and I suppose, you know, the most obvious aspect of it is, is this. What point in there is keeping businesses going that have no future? And, uh, and that will be a really tricky process for the government to navigate. How does it choose which businesses may have a future and which won't? And I don't think that there's going to be any hard decisions on that made in next week's budget. But the funds that are allocated for next year in the budget to achieve those tasks, I'm pretty sure they won't be sufficient to save the entire tourist industry or the entire hospitality industry uh, or whatever. They'll only be sufficient to sustain uh, a part of it. And 
that really is is a problem that nobody in government wants to face, but it will come down the line, uh, certainly. There's no avoiding it. Jane, I'm going to come back to you in a second on this, but I do want to ask Cliff about that. How does one go about making those decisions? Traditionally, in in recessions, like the one that we had a, you know, a decade ago, there is an element of, I think what economists call Schumpeterian destruction, where, you know, the 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 very often very negative impacts of a of an economic downturn kind of force issues which were already underlying in the economy and certain kinds of businesses were in decline anyway and then they you know they they never come back but this is a very different kind of a situation we're in here uh, right now it seems to be very difficult to make a decision an informed decision about you know that that particular thing is going to have a future and that particular thing isn't it's impossible which is why as pat said and as you said the decision for now is to keep as many boats afloat as you can and see how things look. Uh, see how things look next year. I mean, I was listening to um, there was a program on last night where um, Tommy Bow was going around. To, it was, I think it was on Virgin Virgin Media, talking to various businesses, small businesses, and he went to see uh, Leo Varadkar at the end, uh, the Tanishta business minister for business, to kind of put their case to him or whatever, and. Tanisha was explaining to him how, you know, how he see, saw things in future. And he said, look, the COVID-19 pub, the pub of the future is going to be very different, maybe very different to the pub that we're used to in the past. And I think that, you know, it kind of goes to the heart of, of, of what we're looking at. And it's really almost impossible to decide from where we stand now uh, what you should do. There is most definitely a case to, to keep a lot of these sectors going for now. I mean, I was reading a piece in the early days of the crisis about the restaurant industry, for example. Now, the restaurant industry is something which the state would never normally get involved in. If people don't like the Italian restaurant down the end of the road, then they'll go to the Greek one up the far end and the Italian one will close and some other, some other operator will take it on and, and open it. And, you know, that's the normal free market. And the government normally has nothing to do with that or very little to do with it anyway. There might be a bit of city council support or trying to keep firms going. But in general, it's not a sector that the state gets involved in. But where we are now, the risk, the risk is that the entire restaurant industry, half the hotel industry, all the arts industry that you, know, that you write about, a lot of that just gets wiped out. So there is a really big economic argument for keeping those sectors going because the cost of them all going bust and everyone losing their job and restarting them all again is just, just enormous. But there does come the point, as Pat said, where you've got to make the call. What's what's it going to look like in, in, in a year or 18 months' time? And it's all just completely down to the virus. If you knew next summer that we were going to be back to something like normal or even next autumn, then you just keep everything going and you reckon, you know, the costs are going to fall off for, for you from next summer on. But we just don't know that. Uh, we don't even know it'll be the end of next year. We don't even know it'll be 2022. We just... We're just uh, we just don't know, so it's going to be the it's it's going to be the contingency budget. The money is going to be put aside, and um, a lot of the hard decisions are, are are going to be put off because you just can't make them. The point is going to come, I think, where the government has to make decisions about shooting the wounded, and that is a politically toxic process to be in that nobody wants to in government wants to address at this point. And they're hoping they won't have to address it. But the chances are, to some degree, they are. And Jen, that brings up for me the, the position of the opposition, and obviously Sinn Féin, the, 
the leaders of the opposition. Um, there are great great potential opportunities for Sinn Féin in this. What um, what Cliff and Pat are describing there are potentially very divisive decisions, uh, decisions in which a lot of people will be hurt, whether they be resentful, they'll be extremely angry. Um, all of that spells opportunity, doesn't it, for for the opposition as a whole and Sinn Féin in particular? Yeah, I would have. I would agree with that. Of course, it presents an opportunity. It's it's the opposition's bread and butter, really, isn't it? To attack the government on on issues like that, particularly when you have a situation whereby, and we know very, we've documented uh, on this podcast very well, the cuts to the pandemic unemployment payment, um, and the fact that you know we were going in one direction towards the summer. There was a lull. The figures were getting lower every week. There was a, a decrease week on week. And now it's going the opposite direction. And as uh, as Cliff mentioned, you know, Michal Martin talking in the doll about an extra 50 or 60,000 people by the end of this week applying um, for, for the PUP. And that number is going up every single day that we are in level three restrictions. And um, if you marry this with the, what Leo Varadkar was talking about last night, which is a circuit breaker lockdown, which is kind of the inevitable if the figures keep going in the wrong direction, you're into level five and the figures then are exponential. So, I mean... Th- th- the government kind of is faced with an impossible situation of having to defend any future cuts or any future tapering of any scheme when they're faced with an opposition like Sinn Féin, um, who have absolutely no problems in making their their voice heard. I mean, we know Mary Lou McDonald's personality uh, very well, and I think that she will she will make the party's position very well known. And it was interesting as well to hear Leo Varadkar on the on um, Ortiz the night when he met was talking about the decision not to go to level five. And he kind of raised the spectre of um, our borrowing limit, that we can't just keep borrowing, that we can't continuously be in this pattern. Yes, we can borrow at very, very low rates at the moment, but that won't be uh, that won't be the, the case always. And also the government are very, very aware of where we stand in comparison to our EU counterparts. They do not want to be seen as being an outlier uh, in the EU, um, both um, financially um, and all of this ties in because now the economy is so intertwined with uh with the with the health situation so you know they'll have to balance that situation in terms of um providing for people's livelihoods providing all the various schemes that are needed but also being able to afford it um and it's it's much easier as we all know to stand on the opposition benches and stand up and call something a disgrace and and highlight the hard cases of workers who are suffering um i think the hard job is is making sure the money is there uh, and, uh, you know, charting a way through when, as as we've already said, the situation is so very uncertain. Just before we move on to the next subject, I just want to remind our listeners that the, if you do like this podcast um, and if you'd like to continue listening to it and if you'd also like to get uh, unfettered access to the quality journalism published every day and every week by the Irish Times, just go to irishtimes.com slash inside. That's where you can sign up for unlimited access and using that particular address, irishtimes.com slash inside, allows us to know how many of you, our listeners, have been persuaded to make that excellent decision, which is very good for the podcast as well as for the Irish Times. And if you are in the habit of listening to podcasts, you might be particularly interested in our current offer of a free pair of Sennheiser wireless headphones if you purchase a premium weekend or complete subscription. All the information is at irishtimes.com slash inside. Now, Cliff, at the top of the show, uh, Jen mentioned, obviously, that Brexit and COVID-19 were top of the agenda, but she did also mention climate. The Climate Action Bill uh, was passed. That seems to be the only significant other piece of policy which might have some impact on the budget next week. Yeah, there's no doubt that um, the best green foot will be put forward 
in the budget. Um, I, I think even uh, Eamon Ryan was saying himself that the largest amount of the cost of this would probably accrue in, in, in future years rather than this year. But there's no doubt, nonetheless, that, that a lot of emphasis will be put uh, in the budget on this. I mean, the big cost items looking out over the next few years in terms of what's going to be announced in the climate bill. Uh, number one, wind energy, I think, which is going to require a really chunky kind of 40, 50 billion kind of investment over the next few years. And the other one is retrofitting houses uh, and public buildings, which is going to require something around the same amount of money. Now, we may we will, may well see the start of uh, some of that in next week's budget, particularly in terms of the retrofitting programme, perhaps some incentives for people, perhaps a start on some programmes uh, down in the Midlands, which was, uh, I think, highlighted as the place where, where some of this would start. And, and the way you do it is to choose blocks of houses and to, and to do it in that way. It seems to be the most cost-effective way rather than um, doing it across the country. There may, there may be some increased incentive for, for households as well. And, of course, we will see some other, uh, well, more than nods to the green agenda, you know, things that have been pushed by the Green Party and were agreed in the programme for government, for example, uh, the walking and cycling infrastructure, investment in public transport. Unlike the last recession, um, so far anyway, the signs are that investment spending is going to be maintained. That's where we really went wrong last time. So we are going to see a lot of money spent uh, on, on, on green items next week. And also on housing. And housing as well, obviously. But so if we see a rebalancing, let's say, of the transport budget, you know, away to some extent from roads and towards uh, towards walking, cycling and public transport, um, do we also see an increase in taxation, in particular carbon tax? Yeah, there's no doubt the carbon tax is going up. I mean, that's been signalled already. Um, it's going to happen. Uh, it's going to happen every, every year now. And I presume... Uh, Pascal Donner, who has a taxing, the taxing part of the uh, the taxing one of the ministers next week will 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 underline that. Uh, possible there could be some other moves as well. Um, there were various things outlined in the tax strategy group paper. So the the senior public servants sit around every year and and discuss what the options for the budget put forward for, to put forward the ministers. Now, typically eighty or ninety percent of it is is completely ignored. Uh, but there were some suggestions in the in the in the green uh, in the green area. One was this long-standing one of um, bringing the cost of diesel up to the or the tax on diesel up to the the same level as the tax on petrol, uh, which would be an environmentally sensible thing to do. It, it hasn't happened the last few years, but there is a proposal that it could happen over a number of years. And given the prices are reasonably low at the pumps at the moment, it wouldn't be the worst time to do that. Um, there's also something that the car industry have been giving out about that there's talk of increasing VRT on petrol and diesel cars with the most polluting ones getting the highest uh, getting the highest charge. So we, we, you know that is a possibility as well. But again, in the teeth of a in the teeth of a recession, would you want to do that kind of thing, uh, which could maybe put some jobs at risk? I'm, I'm not sure, but they're the kind of areas in addition to carbon tax that the government could look at. But no doubt that the carbon tax increase is 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 coming. Any mine, potential minefields for the government there, Pat? I mean, obviously, it, it seems to me the Greens have been keeping their heads down a little bit in terms of the, the, the things that have been preoccupying most of us. But this is their big moment in terms of some of those issues. There's always been a question about some of the measures 
particularly the ones that uh, Cliff mentioned there, might play particularly badly in, in rural Ireland, for example, increasing diesel um, to, a, to, to a higher rate of tax. Um, might you, some of this add to the government's woes over the next couple of months? Yeah, but I think they will try and take a longer term view on it. And the long term view, certainly in the Greens, is that they need obvious budgetary and policy wins and they need to display them to their members and their uh, their voters. The you know, the plans for the real paradigm shift in terms of energy provision, you know, that massive investment in wind and uh, solar, perhaps wave power as well, that uh, people have been talking uh, about. And certainly, you know, people who uh, uh, people who may be inclined to vote for the Greens have been talking about that requires massive investment and the potential for... Uh, for massive borrowing to fund that simply has to be hit by the already enormous borrowing that's going on to meet the current costs of the uh, pandemic. But I do think that you'll see lots of eye-catching stuff in terms of public transport, cycling, walking infrastructure. A lot of the... um, There's a political difficulty for the other parties in moving away from roads or in certainly cancelling roads projects that have already been agreed. And in some cases, the investment has largely been already committed. So um, I'm not not sure you will see high profile cancellation of roads projects but you will definitely see some eye catching stuff on cycling public transport and walking i think that uh you know the potential go back to your question the potential for budget landmines i mean it's always the horror of finance ministers drawing up and governments at large drawing up budgets that something that they haven't quite foreseen explodes that evening or explodes on the following day's live line. And then you will see, as we've seen in time-honoured fashion, the scramble to perform a reverse uh, ferret. But, you know, that's why the green measures in this, I think, will need to be very carefully politically proofed. Now, at one level, there's no proofing of a an increase in the carbon tax. That is going to be unpopular in some quarters. I think you'll probably see, you know, mitigation for uh, uh, mitigation measures um, for some parts of society. You may see, you know, increase in fuel allowance and that for uh, for the elderly uh, to compensate for the increased cost of fossil fuels. I mean, that's, of course, counterintuitive, but um, uh, are, are contradictory at least, but uh, it, it it is probably politically necessary. So you know, for some of the green, for some of you know those you know the green measures that are intended to change lifestyle habits of uh, of people, it's hard to politically prove them because the whole point of them is to make the existing ways of living inconvenient. Are financial are applied financial penalties to them to encourage people to change their behaviour, but people don't like to change their behaviour. They find that uh, they find that inconvenient. So I think that there is that tension that will definitely remain at the heart of the uh, uh, of the budget. Listen, finally, Jen, I'm I'm kind of fascinated by this bill, which um, was introduced to the um, to the doll by I think by People Before Profit TD Gino Kenny first. Um, the Dying with Dignity bill. It seems to have achieved some level of momentum. It's a it's a 
complex, ethically difficult subject, um, one which a lot of countries around the world are starting to deal with in one way or another. Um, I'm sort of surprised that it's got as far as it has, given that it's so challenging. Uh, is it not exactly the kind of thing that in our political system normally gets kicked to committees of the great and good or constitutional conventions or something of that sort? Well, that's the big question this week, I think. And it is, you're right, it is a highly, it's, it's a really, really sensitive topic. Um, and I think the politicians are very well aware of it. Um, and it's back up for, for debate this week. Um, it was only tabled a number of weeks ago. Um, and uh, it's proceeding to, to committee stage. So the government did table an amendment, I think, last Thursday um, when it was first presented for a second reading. And really, it was a counter motion from the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee. Um, and what the government want to do, what the amendment proposes to do, is that the bill is read um, a second time in 12 months' time, uh, October 2021. And what that allows for is a scrutiny between now and then by a uh, specially established, by an all-party Oireachtas uh, Committee. And that Oireachtas Committee would then set out recommendations, which then would be considered in turn by the Oireachtas um, again. So, you know, if um, that amendment is agreed, then obviously the bill doesn't go ahead to the next reading or to the next stage. Um, and, you know, the, I think there would be a lot of disappointment um, from Gino Kelly because, you know, he was keen to point out that this to him is kicking the can down the road. Whereas those on the other side of the fence say, because it's such a sensitive bill, because it's such a sensitive topic, it does need to be trashed out, perhaps in an arena that isn't uh, as hot-tempered sometimes as the doll can become. Um, and we saw with the issue of the Eighth Amendment that Oireachtas committees can play a, a, a very constructive role um, and allow politicians and you know other interested parties to thrash out an issue um, in a less charged atmosphere. So we'll see what way the vote goes. Um, but you know it, it will be one. It'll definitely be one to keep an eye on. But it, for for the time being, it it has the support, and at least in at least in the stage of moving to the next part um, of parties like uh, uh, Sinn Fein and other other uh, parties on the left. I mean, this is an instance where it does make sense, doesn't it, for added scrutiny, Pat? Uh, yeah, well, of course, the whole purpose of the legislative process is to scrutinise uh, legislation. There is an att- this is an attempt to kick to touch uh, by the government. That may be a terribly sensible uh, thing to do, depending on your view on the issue, I suppose. The vote is actually taking place uh, tonight. The weekly votes previously used to be scheduled uh, to take place on uh, on a Thursday. But this vote, because it all is in the um, convention centre and all TDs can vote in it, this vote is, is taking place tonight. Uh, sometime between 9.30 and uh, and a quarter past 10. So we will know what the situation uh, is with regard to it fairly quickly. I did a bit of ringing around on it earlier. People in, uh, in government buildings who have, as Jen uh, correctly says, have proposed uh, the amendment to it, which would pause it for a year and kick it into a special committee. They're quite unsure as to how this vote is going to go. They definitely don't know. There was no very little confidence that the bill would, uh, you know, that the, the, the government's amendment would um, uh, would be approved by the Dáil earlier. Both Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael will operate a vote of conscience on it. Uh, there's, there's not going to be any whip on it, so that makes it inherently unpredictable. Similarly with the Greens, though cabinet ministers who, uh, in whose name the government amendment is tabled, will be expected uh, to vote for the government 
amendment. Uh, Labour is going to vote against the government amendment. Sinn Féin is going to vote against the government amendment and for the bill. And so uh, I think at this point, um, you know, the fate of, of, of the bill uh, is, um, is very much up in the air. So we'll, we'll, we'll see later whether the bill dies with dignity or whether it uh, lives to fight another day, as it were perhaps an ill-chosen metaphor but we will um, we will leave it there anyway thanks to uh, to Pat to Jen and to Cliff thanks also to our producer Suzanne Brennan JJ Vernon our engineer and if you do want to get in touch with us we're always delighted to hear from you just email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com until the next time thanks very much indeed for listening 